on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Warning! What? I'm trying to warn you! About what? About spoilers. Today there will be major spoilers from Sony's Venom Let There Be Garbage. Disney's What If. And not even the watcher knows what else. Okay, fine, great. Thank you for warning us. I love you! Hello! Welcome to episode 6 of X-Ray Vision, the cricket podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, pop culture, and more. Today, we are covering the finale of the Disney Plus show, What If? And giving our thoughts on the pure, uncut insanity that is Venom. Let there be carnage and so much more. But first, welcome back to the show, writer, comic book whiz, pop culture prophet, the great Rosie Knight. Rosie, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I've my brain has been absolutely shattered by the venom let there be carnage experience. So let's talk about it. Quick quick recap for the folks. This is of course the uh, second venom movie uh and uh spoiler alert a bridge for venom to enter the MCU directed by mocap whiz Andy Circus. Uh, written by Kelly Marcel of uh, Saving Mr. Banks and Fifty Shades of Grey fame. Uh, a quick recap, if that's necessary. Venom and Tom Hardy's uh, Eddie Brock have uh, deepened their relationship, but of course, like any relationship, they've entered that rocky phase, that kind of like post I love you phase where it's like, okay, now it's time to do the dishes. Now it's time to clean the apartment or not clean the apartment apparently. And, uh, you know, uh, Venom would like to eat people. Eddie Brock is like, no, please don't. Meanwhile, a piece of the symbiote has gotten free during Eddie Brock's interview with the serial killer, Cletus Cassidy. And guess what? Carnage is born. This movie is purely insane, Rosie. I mean, you everything that you just said sounds like it couldn't fit into 85 minutes. And what you were talking about was literally like the first 15 minutes of the movie. <laughs> well, that, let me just say this. 85 minutes, a brisk 85. Like it goes, yeah. it, it, it wastes absolutely no time getting to the mid credit scene, which is really the important thing. I love 85 to 90 minute movies Dude. in this is Not, one of those. 90 minute movies is like, I always say like, if a movie's 90 minutes, I'm probably going to enjoy it. But I was not prepared for a big budget, big two superhero movie to be 85 minutes. Like we are living in the three hour life. <laughs> I, I saw this on the same day as No Time to Die, which was really good, but it's like two hours and 45 minutes. So yes. I went into this thinking it would be like two hours and 20 minutes long. And suddenly it was the end of the movie. And I was like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> like it is absolutely unhinged 
it took everything that I thought they would never carry over from the first movie, and mm-hmm. they just put only that in the second movie. They cut out the kind of cinematic backstories and the and the stuff that tried to make the first movie a long and yes. b story based, I guess. And instead, they were just like. It's Tom Hardy and he's playing Venom and Eddie Brock. They're both unhinged. And also here's Michelle Williams with some unbelievable line reads. Just <laughs> Michelle Williams is in this movie like, I need to put the down payment on my lake house. Like yeah. energy. Like I'm here to make sure my kids' college fund is firmly established. In the first movie, she actually has like my favorite line, which is near the end of the first movie, after everything that's happened, when Venom has apparently been blown up or something, they're sitting on this street looking over like the beautiful like San Francisco skyline. And she looks at him and she's like really sincere. She's like, sorry about Venom. Like sorry I say that <laughs> all the time because I'm like, what do you mean? He's like an alien who took over this guy's body. Like, what, what do you mean? Sorry about Venom. But in this movie, every line she delivers is on that level of incredibleness. Like they're in a restaurant and she's like, is Venom in there? And she's like yes, trying to like Venom. secretly talk to Venom. And it's just like, I can't fathom when I watch the movie, I'm like, this is a true time capsule of the time we're in because there is just no way that this movie exists at any other period of time. There's just no way. Part of the issue and part of why this movie is insane. This is, let me just bottom line it. This is not a good movie. But there are things about it, much like the first Venom movie, that are so insane that I'm really glad that they're there because Mm -hmm. they're so weird. Mm -hmm. That said, no one in this film reacts the way a human being would react to literally anything. (laughs) There's uh, one point where Mrs. Chen- I knew uh, you were going to talk about Mrs. Chen. The the, the grocery store owner who we we remember (laughs) from the first episode. Mrs. Chen is, is hard at work. And a, a Venom host, right? So, like, Venom and Eddie have been separated, and Venom is jumping from body to body and absolutely just burning just human killing bodies people, out. Just yeah, everywhere. just killing people. A Venom host wanders into Mrs. Chen's uh, store. So, it's Venom in a different body and collapses and pukes. It pukes. It's like the blackness coming out, like, and, and looks like on the edge of death. And Mrs. Chen, like, lovingly cradles this half corpse's head to her <laughs> chest like a like a mother trailing her chest. It's like, and the theater is guffawing. You knew it was going to be nuts when the movie opens with oh. the Chiron uh, 1996. And we see a younger version of Cletus Cassidy played by Jack Bandera. So this is the younger version of Woody Harrelson's character. Woody Harrelson was about 35, 36 in 1996. <laughs> He's being played by, by like a 23-year-old man in this flashback. And they dub Woody Harrelson's voice now over the performance of Jack Bandera as young Cletus. It is, that choice alone is so fucking crazy. And you knew when that happened that you were in for the shit. And and so, like, the funniest thing about that is, like, that is the most unhinged thing about the opening, but it almost isn't because, like, you it, we're, we're introduced to them because they're, like, so it's Cletus and uh, Shriek, who's Francis Barrison, yes. uh, Nomi Harris when she's older, and they're communicating through a, their toilets. Like, it's, like, no, a romantic the, the, the toilet the sister. It's, like... 
they have to put their faces next to their toilets to talk to each other in this like terrible orphanage there. And also the other thing that kind of blew my mind about that opening is they just straight up basically say that Shriek is a mutant. Then right, she's yeah. like, she's like, oh, the mutations are too strong. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know like Marvel, anyone could say the word mutation. Like what's going on here? And uh, and yeah, I mean, the, it's just that when they dubbed Woody Harrelson's voice, you just know you're in for it. You're like, it's, 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 it's things are going so on. Town. I mean, also uh, as well, they just so obviously like they wanted to get to the end of that and they wanted to do some cool fights and they wanted to do the mid credit scene. So halfway through the movie, they're just like, uh, what's Woody Harrelson been in before? Natural Born Killers? And then they just oh do like God. 20 minutes of Natural Born Killers with him and Shriek. <laughs> down to his outfit, down mm-hmm. to the car, down to the way they are driving around. Naomi Harris, you want to talk at line reads. Naomi oh. Harris in this film, man, she's one of the greats. I love her. Yeah. How crazy also to be like, you saw her in two movies that day. And oh, yeah. it could not be the... Like, oh, yeah, in... No discovering time to die, new versions like, of polar opposites. Truly, like, No Time to Die, she is just the absolute, like, smoothest, yeah, incredible. You just watch her and you're like, wow. Like, I just want to see, like, the movie only about Money Penny. Like, that's all I want to see. This is just pure. In this movie, she's just chewing scenery and venom. She's loving life. Yes. There's that one scene where she's like, somebody's, like, I think it's the guy from Veep, Dan, and he's like, Dan, Venom's who is gonna, also named Dan in, in, in this in, movie. Like, strangely, <laughs> they made the decision in, in movie one to be like, this uh, actor's most famous role is named Dan. So we'll just make Reed him Scott. Dan. His, yeah, his most famous role is, na- is also named Dan. So let's also call him Dan. Just and he, con- completely confusing. He only has like one. He is, pl- he, even though he's not like a total scumbag like he was in Veep, he definitely has a similar energy. So it is like yeah. really confusing. And then, so he says something like, he's like, oh, you know, Venom's going to kill you or he's going to kill both of you because they, they kidnapped Michelle Williams, who's obviously not that bothered about it. And she does this line reading that is just so iconic because she's like, people tried it before. And then she just really high pitches it and she's like, botched it. And you're just like, this is unbelievable. Like she is having so much fun. I just kind of love that. Like, I feel like Andy Serkis' direction was just like, do whatever you want. Yeah, do more. (laughs) Do Do more. more. Um, And again, this movie is super weird, kind of bad, but. They take so many crazy sw- like the listen the relationship between Brock and Venom is essentially a codependent romantic relationship. Again, mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, Venom tells Eddie Brock that he loves him, uh, in a very sincere way, and they spend the entire movie when they are together arguing. They then separate. Venom. <laughs> goes on this weird like vision quest where he goes to a rave that's kind of coded as a pride rave. yeah pride lots a pride of, rave it's lots of rainbows and then he gives a speech about how he's, he's coming out of the neon, closet like, rainbow lights around his body yeah it's it's like i i think that actually like the the one thing that i'm like they should have just committed to that and just made it pride and made it obvious they're gay cuz everybody knows they're in love with each other like these yes. two codependent toxic Losers in their own words, you know. I, that was another bit when he was like, 
you are a loser on your planet. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the line that I never thought we would hear from again, where they just both call each other losers and admit to being losers. That is in the first like five minutes of the movie. Andy was like, I know what you want. You want Venom to talk about how he's a loser. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Another, like there's so many crazy moments. So at one point during the uh, natural born killers escapade, Cassidy and Shriek are driving around and they stop at a gas station where the, <laughs> the, the clerk is just like surfing the internet, like on a Dell laptop. Cassidy jumps over the counter, kills the gas station attendant, and then puts his symbiote fingers into the USB port. <laughs> and then hacks, legitimately hacks the laptop to discover the location of the asylum where a shriek was being held. And it like creates a browser. It creates a red carnage themed browser that somehow from a random kid working in a bodega's laptop hacks into like top secret police files that the main cop did not know about. He didn't even know about them. The (laughs) one cop. I mean, the also the other thing is like on a comic book level, so Shriek in the comics is a is a symbiote. She's not yes. here. And yeah. we also meet this Patrick Mulligan, who's played by like legitimately one of the best actors in the world, Stephen Graham. And and like he is just the funniest like Boston cop kind of trope. And he in the comics becomes Toxin. So it's like they're kind of hot. It was like somebody was trying to set up like a planet Venom, like multiple symbiotes. But then they were just like, eh. Because he's dead. <laughs> Because Shriek is apparently dead at the end of the movie. Interesting. So this is uh, this is a perfect bridge to start talking about the the universe is expanding tagline mm-hmm. from the promo materials, which we all assumed would be we're going to get these asexual spawns of Carnage and mm-hmm. Venom. Uh, we're going to meet Toxin, Shriek, etc. We're going to see all the kind of like mini symbiotes that have in in Marvel canon spun off from Venom. I think that it's, we all assumed that's what it was going to be. I certainly did. And then the mid credit scene comes, and what it is is an introduction of Venom into the Marvel timeline. I think we're going to see Venom in uh, No Way Home, like almost <laughs> confirmed, basically. Uh, Eddie Brock is is sitting on the bed in some shitty hotel, upset about his life. He and Venom are wondering what's next. And then all of a sudden everything changes and they're in this tropical location and uh, Peter Parker is on the television uh, as part of a, a, you know, Daily Bugle editorial uh, comment where, you know, the Bugle is saying this guy fucking sucks. The whole, you know, everything that's going on with Mysterio sucks. I think it's the same thing from the end of Far From Home. So I think it actually sets it up as being basically they join at that moment, which is just before No Way Home. Yes. And Venom says, that guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because apparently... (sighs) Okay, so I... Yeah, I tell think, me how. Okay, you so think this that is what happens. I think. So, so in that scene, right? So they Eddie takes Venom on like a romantic holiday because Venom's dream is that he can like put his toes in the sand and feel the wind in his hair, yeah. and then that. But it's like kind of a scrubby like hotel, and then. But just before it happens, Venom says something that I think is one of the most hilarious and probably gonna end up. It seems like a throwaway line, but I think is gonna be a really big part of No Way Home. Venom says to Eddie. They're watching a telenovela and, and Venom's like, right. everybody has secrets. 
And Eddie's like, oh, are you hiding something from me? And then Venom says, 80 billion years of the symbiote hive mind. You don't know what we've seen. Like you couldn't comprehend it, blah, blah, blah. And he says he's going to show it to Eddie. But then this weird like universal change happens and they end up in the MCU. But I think... Because when he sees him, he sees Peter Parker, he licks the screen, it's it's gross as it should be, and he's like, that guy. And when we see in the trailer for No Way Home, when we saw uh, Doc Ock, he also recognized Peter. So I think there's going to be some idea of like, in the Venom's case, he maybe he has seen Peter through... Topher Grace is not coming back, but maybe something like that is going to happen. And it's, I think it's like, it's very silly, but this whole movie is really silly. I think that that's right. So in the comics, um, eventually we get the backstory of the symbiote who I believe is named Clert. And uh, because of all the kind of like bloodlust and, trauma and murders that he's committed eventually goes back to the hive mind where he's like cleansed. Mm -hmm. Maybe we get some kind of version of that that allows Venom to not be the weird Sodi Venom and and kind of like cleanses it of all the strangers Mm -hmm. and makes it more malleable for the the MCU inclusion. I think that they're probably going to just like, my feeling is I couldn't really what it was blowing my mind when you first watch that movie you just can't be prepared for it even if you've listened to us talk about it now yes. you can't really be prepared you, for you, the experience you cannot you are not ready for how fucking crazy this I, movie you just simply are you not just, ready you're for just it. not I, I saw it like again and I still wasn't prepared even though I had already seen it so I do think that there's I just think there's kind of some, I was trying to work out Kevin Feige is like a king of quality control. Part of the reason they're having to explode the MCU into this multiverse now is because of how absolutely streamlined it's been until up up until this point. So it doesn't, to me, I was like, what can Feige and the MCU and Disney get out of this by not making it something where Tom Holland just randomly has a cameo to make Sony happy or whatever and making it where you bring Venom in. I think it's to get the symbiote into the MCU. Because then yeah, you can right. you can venomize other characters. You can have anti-venom. You could actually do a black symbiote suit story with uh with Peter or maybe Miles or whatever. Yeah. And I think really I as much as I would love to see how they could fit wild Tom Holland, it's just it's too wacky. The MCU, watching that movie, you just realize how safe the MCU plays it. You know? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's going to be something like that. As in the comics, a lot like the movie, the symbiote has a like love-hate relationship with a lot of its hosts, including Eddie Brock. And there's a lot of like leaving and coming back and leaving Eddie Brock for Peter Parker, but then rediscovering Eddie Brock. And it does that again and again with different hosts. And there have been more quote unquote normal hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you're right about that. I think that we're going to see the, I think we're going to see the symbiote cleaved off of Eddie at some point and maybe kept in a laboratory and studied by perhaps a scientist named Reed Richards mm-hmm. as they figure out a way to kind of introduce the symbiote into like the more mainline Marvel canon that is a lot, there's just, stuff that would not work in in Marvel <laughs> Disney continuity. For instance, and again, 
there are so many weird moments of this, but like the movie kind of ends with Eddie Brock talking to two chickens in the park that are his pets that he bought for Venom to eat, but Venom didn't want to eat them because their brains are too small. And their best friends. To these, and their best friends. Talking to two chickens about the classic Spanish novel Don Quixote and the relationship between <laughs> Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. That's a scene in this It's also movie. a recurring theme. Like, it's like it, it happens once and then he returns there. Like, it's that's something they really thought was important enough to, like, put in twice. It's mind-blowing. I, I, I think, like... So in in Marvel, like, uh, let's talk about some of the things that Venom does in the comics that we could potentially see in the MCU. So Venom, I mean, Venom's in Guardians of the Galaxy, which for a spell, which I don't know that people really know about. Yeah, I think as well, like, they've had so much success. Like, they did a big Venomized event where everyone got Venomized. You know, they had a Venomized T-Rex in Old Man Logan. They had Venomized... Rocket and Groot, they had venomized everyone. And those toys still sell to this day. My nephew has a venomized Miles Morales. They still keep venomizing these characters, seeing what would happen when a character. So if they wanted to do a kind of darker take on some, you know, we've seen them do Marvel Zombies, a version of it in What If. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some kind of venomized thing or saw an unexpected character like Gwenpool or something be introduced in a mm. venomized way. With I think that they must... Be really, and also they love military stuff. I know that one of the Venom, the kind of like later stage oh, Venom, agent, 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 agent Venom, Venom the, the, uh, the, the, uh, was a vet, like the, right? Yeah, he was a vet. It was like a paralyzed vet. And then um, the, the magical, the Venom is like a magical right. disability cure is very not good to me, but that definitely does seem like something. Uh, they love a militarized superhero. That could be an interesting way. Also would be very easy for the symbiote to get into the hands of the yeah. military in the MCU. So also that space is a big thing right now, not just in What If, but with the scrolls and everything else. So we could even, there could even be something where the Tom Hardy Venom coming into the MCU is not necessarily a fake out, but is a bit of a red herring for where the real symbiote might come from with all you the space just, exploration. Actually, you know, now that you mention it, um, it was recently revealed that the symbiote and Gore the God Butcher like share a common oh. ancestry. That makes a lot of sense when you think about Gore's powers, actually. Yeah. So I could see the symbiote being a bridge to love and thunder mm -hmm. in some form or fashion to get us prepared for yeah. Gore the God Butcher. Also as well, like... If you were going to trust one person and one tone in the MCU to bridge those, it would be Taika. Yeah. Like, it would Taika. hundred percent. Taika He'd find has a weird the thing. humor and the cheekiness, but also with the ability to tell, like, slick human character-based stories that you would probably need to kind of take Venom from the Venom Let There Be Carnage to a Venom that's acceptable in the MCU. Do you have any uh, Venom wrecks for people who are like, I got to know about Venom. Well, I think the number one thing you need to read because of it was a, it was a, let's say, an, I'm going to put the inverted commas around inspiration, but it was definitely an inspiration for this movie is Venom Lethal Protector. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, they mention it only 15 or <laughs> 20 times in the movie. Yeah. I mean, they even precede the coming to the MCU where they're like, you know, Eddie's like, we'll go wherever they need a lethal protector. And that means a lot to Venom because he really wants to be known as the lethal protector. But that's a really classic series 
mm-hmm. sees Venom take on more of a her- he thinks he's a hero because of the threat of other symbiotes and stuff. Planet Venom also, if you want to know more about yes. the kind of characters that we've seen in here. I, I'm a, I think one of the reasons this movie and the first movie was so popular, Venom was such like an inherently 90s staple. It's, yes. There were clothes time. of Venom. There were baseball shirts. There were toys. There was pogs. Over there the was top, stationary. Over the top, horror Yeah, like, you know. That was a very 90s and kind I, of thing. I think that we, people who grew up in the 90s or who were around that, whether you were a little kid, whether you're a teenager who thought it was cool, whatever, that is the buying market for these movies. And I think this is the ultimate nostalgia payoff for Sony because I just that has to be the reason why people go to these so I think looking back to those 90s comics is like really fun also the original black suit um symbiote spider-man storyline it's, it's just it, really it's cool all it it the art is amazing it's really interesting to read and you will be surprised by how um how accurate this Spider-Man 3 representation is like when <laughs> comparing yes. it to Venom you're like wow Spider-Man 3 really was like into the comic book accuracy. <laughs> I also I will notice that it appears that his bracelet budget was cut. I know it's disrespectful. It was for the wigs. That must have been what it's for because <laughs> you know, we're talking like a, a mid five figure bracelet budget for the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> they let him keep his horrible leather jacket with the zip down the middle. That was like it. And then they were like we need to spend at least $500 on Patrick Mulligan's wig and also Woody Harrelson's wig. Justice for Woody Harrelson's original Venom Stinger wig, though, because I would have loved to see this movie. I feel like this wig wasn't good, but I missed the chaotic noodle-headed, like, red nightmare wig from from the Stinger. So who are we going to see? Your predictions, who we are going to see in No Way Home. And after that, ending which i'd heard i'd heard rumblings that maybe tom holland would be i did not believe it i did I not heard believe nothing. it i was shocked my no, jaw no. fell open i had heard people saying like oh supposedly he's gonna be in this this the post credit scene and i was like yeah of course he is sure like wink wink where did you get that news from i was wrong so after that i just think it's all bets are off i think <sighs> we're definitely obviously seeing the old spideys Yes. Uh, Andrew and um, Toby. I'm really hoping if that's the case. And now that we've seen that they're open to having uh, Tom Hardy's definitely going to be in it. We're going to at least see Eddie Brock momentarily. I don't think they're going to bring Topher in because I think that it makes they can just be like the symbiote is the connecting tissue there. Right, right. What I'm really hoping is we're going to get to see Nicholas Hammond, who played the old Spider-Man in the CBS TV shows. Yeah. Uh, I want to see wow. the guy who played Japanese Spider-Man. Like if they're really going to do it, I'm like, let's just do it. Um, and after Venom, Spider-Ham? I actually, no, I would love to see Spider-Ham. Spider-Ham's <laughs> an icon. I mean, bring in Nicolas Cage as uh, yeah. as Spider-Man Noir. I-, I think we could see Miles. Now, I don't know if they would do, I don't know if they would do something where in a momentary animated sequence of the multiverse, we saw Into the Spider-Verse right. Miles or something. But I think Miles is coming soon. I just, I honestly, I never saw that Venom ending coming. And now I just think anyone's going to be in it. I wonder if we do see, I think we're introduced to him, maybe not powered up. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, you know, who knows what the off ramp here is, or I don't know what Tom Hardy's contract is, but there's a world in which obviously the Sinister Six is going to be involved in this. Um, We've got basically everyone now. 
you know, ultimate uh, Peter Parker uh, perishes while fighting the Sinister Six, and that paves the way for Miles Morales. Mm-hmm. You know, theoretically, that's on the table if they wanted to do that. I do think that this movie, we're going to see a version of Doctor Strange die. We now know there's probably multiple versions. I think we're going to see a version of Peter die. Um, probably the main version. Tom Holland has played this character for a long time. He's old now. And also, we all know, if you've read the comics, those are my Spider-Man comics, there is a part of that storyline where you have Peter and Miles together. So it's not like Tom Holland couldn't come back, but I do think that we're going to see a lot of deaths. I think they're going to go for a, even though it's only been a few years, I think they're going to try and go for an Endgame style event movie that's going to introduce a ton of big cameo moments and also some emotional death situations. That's a good point. Cause like, what is, as we're looking ahead here, what's the team up movie? That's the thing that we're mi- missing is the Avengers framework, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the, you know, the Captain America acted this way too. Um, is it no way home or do you, or is it, uh, is it mouth of madness? Do you think that the, is the team up movie? I think it's probably going to be mouth of madness. I think that no Way Home, we're going to get a Multiverse of, of Madness, excuse me. A Multiverse me. of Madness. Yeah, I know. it's That's where they took the name from. Yeah. I think it's okay to yeah. get it mixed up. But yeah, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, I think that's going to be the team up. You're going to have Wanda. You're going to have Strange. Is Wanda going to be on his side? Who knows? You know, that's potentially where you could get some more cosmic characters, a clear, maybe, uh, you know, some Mount Wondergore stuff. We They hinted at the, at that at the end of... Uh, that's my personal dream. I will keep talking about it forever. Um... I do, uh, Simon Williams' Wonder Man, like, I think they could introduce a bunch of different weird characters in there, or potentially, if we see No Way Home as maybe uh, Multiverse of Madness, um, as like a two-part movie, because we know Doctor Strange is both, maybe No Way Home is going to introduce some characters that we will then see team up in Multiverse of Madness. I love it. Uh, Up next, Rosie and I step into the airlock where we talk about the finale of What If. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a this summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We're back! Today we're stepping out of the airlock and into the multiverse to discuss the finale of the first season of What If. First, a quick recap. Um, so the finale builds on the events of episode eight, What If Ultron won, in which uh, post-apocalyptic uh, Black Widow and Clint uh, make a deal with the devil, in this case, the uh, Nazi, former Nazi, current Nazi, former founder of S.H.I.E.L.D. Arnim Zola, uh, and download him into an arrow uh, in the hopes that they can use him to... Uh, to corrupt Ultron. Can't be said enough. Arnim Zola, let's remember this. Active Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that and that leads us into episode nine. What if the Watcher broke his oath? Uh, 
in which in order to defeat Ultron, the Watcher assembles the Guardians of the Multiverse, who are these various characters who we have encountered throughout the course of this series. They are Captain Carter, Star-Lord T'Challa, uh, a variant of Gamora that killed Thanos in her universe, uh, Killmonger, King of Wakanda, Party Thor, uh, Corrupted Strange, and then uh, they meet up with a post-apocalyptic Nat who has the uh, the Arnim Zola arrow. Let's talk about this. First of <laughs> I love all, that description. It really it really sums up the chaos, the kind of action-packed chaos. <laughs> I mean, it's an action pack. Like the, you know, there's about eight minutes of setup in which we you know we get a really fun a fun scene of that's basically Captain Carter in the opening intro from Captain America Winter Soldier, like doing the strike on the Lemurian star. Like the dialogue is the same. The whole thing is the same. She's fighting uh, Batrock the Leaper as the Watcher shows up and is like, okay, we need you to uh, come with me. Uh, and then we just basically get into it. We, we see Killmonger as well. And then it's like they just get into the action. Um, yeah, he just, he plucks them from all over and he's just like, pow, like you need to fight this evil Vision Ultron combo. Now, I will say from an action point of view, this felt like the most, one of the most comic booky Marvel properties I've seen in, in terms of the way like everybody's abilities work together, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of synergy between characters. I thought the character choice was very interesting here. Um, yeah, and I do think that that, episode eight where we saw the watcher and infinite ultron like punching each other through the multiverse yeah. that really was the the key point where i was like oh this is like this is comic booky this is like what you can do with something based on a comic book i also think disney was having some fun i think like mustafa from star wars was in there yes, and they were punching right. through i saw an area that like that area and then they kind of definitely continued that on in the finale with this really outrageous just like 25 minutes of of fighting and, and crazy powers and unexpected team-ups. Uh, now let's talk about first, we were talking in the pre-pro about the depiction of the stones here. Ultron, the way he uses them. I, I think probably the best and most accurate like use of the stone, like where you really get a feel for how they work for me is e either their intros in the various Marvel movies, right? Where you're, mm -hmm. you're um, over the course of the movie that introduces each stone, you know, Power Stone and Guardians, for instance. You see what they each do. And then the fight on Titan in Infinity War with yeah. Thanos, I think was like, like a good display. Here it's, as we were talking about, it's kind of just like Ultron is very powerful, period. Yeah, I think as well, like, I think something that this show did that works on some levels and for me makes it a little bit less impactful on others is like it's so heavily based on MCU and MCU lore that it almost kind of ignore unless it's bringing new cool stuff in from the comics like Shimagorath, yeah. who I love. But like a lot of times like it's lore is so based on the MCU that here they're just kind of like, what do the Infinity Gems do? They're powerful. And I'm like, yeah. no, I want to see this yeah. infinite Ultron has the gems. He has this infinite understanding of the universe and everything about it. He even understands that the gems are different on each universe and in each space. But like the only thing we see him do is just use the time stone like really quickly. And I'm like, I want to see, I want to see what these gems can do in this unbelievable 
cosmic space that they've created, like rather than just making some people. Same with Killmonger. He gets those gems and he's just like, cool. And I'm yeah. like, no, do something with them. Like you can do I something guess, with them. You know, with the with the Killmonger part, I, I could almost I could argue it away in the sense that like he just picked them up. You know what I like? Like there would be yes, your con- theoretically your consciousness is expanded to like touch <laughs> every corner of the of the galaxy and and the universe, but I could see there being you know a, a period in which you're like still figuring them out. Yeah, and also if he's learning from what he saw from Infinite Ultron, he wouldn't really know how to use them. So yeah, that's actually that's actually really fair. So that part was fine, but like Ultron should just be really good. He has, th- at by this point in his life cycle, has, like, taken out multiple universes, I think, at yeah, this point. He he somehow is able to utilize the power of the stones to make himself, like, a giant cool Galactus head, and he's looking through different multiverses. Yeah. It is the ultimate, the ultimate quandary of any comic book type story, which is the super overpowered villain against the relatively human and relatable he should, heroes. Right, should not lose. Right. Exactly. But the big kind of catch there is we have like ultra overpowered, unbelievable, corrupted, crazy strange. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned strange because listen, uh if you've been on the internet at all, you've seen these like meme formats where it's like this uh, blue team versus red team or one's got to go or which selection of five like characters from comic book movies beats uh beats what other uh, selection of five characters and the thing you have to realize about dr strange is he's overpowered like a lot of mm-hmm. the big fights that happen in comic books are like how do we how do we get strange on the sidelines for long enough that it <laughs> makes sense that they wouldn't just win dr strange at one point in this first of all he like creates a protective ward that saves everyone's life a million times in the fight. And makes, like, she, super cool, like, cosmic armor. So it's, like, aesthetically pleasing, and it's yeah. also very useful. <laughs> Conjures a three-headed dragon. Like, he does all these things. He, at one point, uh, Ultron, like, creates an explosion that is, like, the size of the galaxy, and Strange eats it. He literally just is like, I'm just going to swallow this, and it does nothing to me. Strange is so fucking powerful, and it is it is nuts how strong he is. Yeah, it, it's basically it's a really it's a really nice bit of payoff. I feel like one of the things about this show is it's sometimes I wasn't sure if it was connected or it wasn't going to be connected, but this is a really good payoff for that episode four where it's yes. the doctor and and he imbibes all those weird monsters yeah. and everything, and and I I just. I liked seeing his wild powers here. There's like a nice, not, you see him kind of become or at least inhabit the powers of like a Shumagorath-esque tentacled creature. And, and he really, that almost beats Infinite Ultron. And that's really cool because uh, in like the old stuff where they're first introducing uh, Shumagorath in Marvel premiere. Oh no, I think it's actually Strange Tales volume two, mm-hmm. 14. Shuma and Strange are like facing down and Shuma's like, if you try and fight me, you're going to become me. And it's like, yeah, like that's literally what happened to Strange here. Like that was a really cool nod. But sadly, Shuma cannot ultimately be the one thing to beat him. So they obviously all have to team up, which is the, it's the point of the Avengers, right? Or, it's, or the, it's the guardians of the multiverse. I, um, I also love that uh, that Strange tapped into Shuma Gorath's dimension, his demonic dimension. Mm-hmm. That was classic. 
a classic strange move when it's like, okay, the fight's not going well, uh, break the glass on the, on, you know, the emergency switch, and I guess I'm going to have to, like, tap into some demon dimension or, like, drink the drink the vial of Zom mm-hmm. and become a demon <laughs> as he does in, like, Planet Hulk, which is a thing, the thing I love about it is, you know, Strange wants to do this. Like, yeah, he, he loves spends, power. He loves he it. He loves it. He's, he, like, all day is in the, you know, his sanctum, coming up with reasons that he shouldn't tap into a demon dimension <laughs> or, like, drink the vial of Zom, but now he gets to do it. Yeah. So... He he loves to do shit like this. Of course, it doesn't work. And then uh, Strange will spend the next like several story arcs dealing with the fallout mm-hmm. of I tapped into the dimension of Shumagorath, and now what do I do? But I loved that. I love that that happened. And yeah, the battle is- scene was that you know it was shot really well with. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, we're constantly, you know, focused on the soul gem, and it's like, oh, it now it's kicking over here, and now they can't get it, and now this person is trying to get it. I, yeah, th- that was really fun. And I think that is something that I think is kind of cool is if people have grown up on the MCU, which like a lot of people have because it's been going on for so long now. This it it's got its own set of Easter eggs and and references that people who maybe haven't really gotten into the comics but love the MCU. Like when they were having that big final fight, it definitely echoed the Battle of New York. You know, where they're going around and you get to see the different weapons and you get that circle of the kind of dolly shot almost. I thought that was really nice kind of, it's nice to look at what came before while also kind of making something that's, it's a little bit different. I want to shout out the the fun Star Wars Easter egg when, uh, when Ultron first shows up and drops the mountain on everybody. And he does the all too easy, uh, which is straight <laughs> out of, you know, Empire Strikes Back when Darth thinks he's uh, uh, taken out uh, his son, Luke. Uh, but then he hasn't. And Luke uh, leaps up into the ceiling. Let's talk about the morality of including some of these characters, because there are some I think there are a few head scratchers, a uh, genocidal killmonger who, listen, he took over Wakanda. He killed he, Tony and killed T'Challa. Tony, killed and, and T'Challa, many people, obviously is it, it, one of the smartest and uh, most brilliant strategists that we've seen mm-hmm. in the MCU, but I think perhaps a head scratcher. And then, of course, active Nazi Arnim Zola, again, not an ex, not an active. Still loves Nazis. Still loves still being a Nazi. Still loves the Nazi shit. Like There's actively just... doing the Nazi stuff. <laughs> it's the ultimate curse of the MCU being so tied to Hydra is in yeah. the comics, Hydra are Nazis. And even if yeah. the MCU does not want to deal with that, that's just how it is. And so that that always kind of, I'm like, I'm sh- I feel like surely you could have Hank Pym, Jarvis, Bruce Banner's computer from when he was a kid in the 80s and he coded something. I feel like narratively there's other places you could go, but I also understand that Arnim Zola is like so intricately connected to the MCU at this point. So like, I get why he's where they went, but I wouldn't have gone there. And also I just have to say, of course it was Black Widow and Clint. Like that's right, a peak they're them shield. decision. They're shield. They're they love folks. that. Yeah, Bad vibes, shield, folks. They, to me, you know, that's like, hey, let's go to the founder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will say that, like, listen, uh, I love Toby Jones. <laughs> I think he's great. I love the voice. Oh, yeah, he's I, so good. I, I end up, there are, I spend a, a silly part of my day, almost every day, doing an Arnim Zola voice to myself. Just like, ha <laughs> Yes, I am. Oh, this body is fantastic. Look at my glutes. It has been such a long time since I have had legs. 
feels wonderful inside the Ultron body. Yeah, I mean, he really got to do that too. He was like, as soon as he was in there, I was like, well done, guys. Yes. You guys made infinite, infinite Arnim Zola. Well done. Good, good plan. Oh, I have arms again. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> um, but as we were talking about in the pre pro, like, okay, you need an AI because that's how you're going to defeat Ultron. Is there not a Jarvis in this world? Like, could mm-hmm. we not ask Jarvis to do it? it we saw, you know? like, we saw Sakarian armor Tony Stark with Gamora. Yeah. And, like, as Saul pointed out in the pre-pro, like, surely that means there's a Jarvis. If Tony exists, there is a Jarvis. Like, that... Friday? Friday not doing anything? Like, we can't mm-hmm. get... We can't get Friday in... Like, I, in fact, I would love to know what Friday is up to in in. in she that, just like... Uh, Chilling in a computer in somewhere, that, like drinking some in tea. Ultra dimension. I'm sure Friday would love to get in the game. Yeah. You know, like I'm not sure that it needs to be Arnim Zola. That said, here is the one way that I can talk myself into involving active Nazi Arnim Zola as well as genocidal Killmonger in this. Um, I read it as kind of like uh like a Lord of the Rings. Why can't we kill Gollum situation, right? You spend, you know, the entire second book and most of the third being like, yeah, just fucking kill this thing already. (laughs) Like, it's he's going to betray you. You can see it. You know it's going to happen. Why can't we kill him? And, you know, like, uh, to the point where Gandalf's like, well, you never know. The part people are going to play. And you're like, Gandalf, shut up. Like, let's kill him. (laughs) I think that you can make a case for it because if... Strange and the Watcher know that, you know, and they say the Watcher knew everything, kind of knew, like, what was going to happen. If the Watcher's plan is ultimately to, like, lock, you know, the villains into a pocket dimension, and if the Watcher selected the Guardians knowing that Killmonger, intoxicated by by power, unable to resist the, the... call of the gems that he would pick them up and then you would also have to have an AI that would corrupt Ultron making it be Arnim and Killmonger much like Gollum those are two characters that you don't feel bad about locking into a pocket dimension forever because they are immoral kind of bad they're bad guys they're villains whereas if it's like okay if Captain Carter and like (laughs) and party thor are are the last two i would you know who are holding down ultron and the gems and then we have to lock everybody into a pocket dimension i would feel bad about that whereas these two they pick up the gems they're struggling forever and then i lock them in a pocket dimension i throw away the key and no one is like oh does anybody feel bad about Zola? No, Zola's an active nazi like let's just get rid of this is a terrible this is like they're terrible people but i will say from what we know about old uh, corrupt Strange Supreme, yeah. I do feel like giving two people who are morally corrupt and who have yeah. the Infinity Gems or a version of the Infinity Gems and these like super sick armors, feel like Doctor Strange, not a good person to like, su- Strange Supreme, power mad Strange Supreme, probably like not a good person to give them to. <laughs> I will say we we kind of like, I did I did wonder if we were trusting corrupt uh, strange a little bit too much like he had very very recently spent a long amount of time like imbibing a lot of evil and just yeah. kind of like digesting it 
and ignoring everything the watcher said. But now I guess the idea is it's like a redemption arc, like yeah, he yeah. wants to make up for it. But I feel like that could go badly in the future. Because obviously this, I did feel like a lot of what was going on here was kind of, would we will potentially see it in season yeah. two. It feels like, you know, so something I thought they were going to do, I just want, did you, so there's like six heroes, right? I definitely yeah. thought at the end they were going to do like an Infinity Watch thing where each of them got a gem. That seemed like a really smart, simple I solution. I thought that, that was, I, when they, when the initial part of the plan was, okay, we got, we get the soul stone. And I thought mm -hmm. that that's where it was going to go. Explain what the Infinity uh, Watch is. Okay. So after the, the events of uh, Infinity War, um, the, the, they decide that the best thing to do to keep the stone safe is give them to each of these different heroes throughout like the Marvel universe. And it's uh, Adam Warlock and the Infinity Watch, but in because Adam Warlock is more of a key player in um, the Infinity Saga than we saw in the MCU, which is interesting because they definitely did tease him at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I think 2. we'll see. I, I, I will be shocked if he is not in Guardians 3. I think so. And it, I, I would be really excited to see that, to see yeah, them introduce same. him at this point. One so, of yeah. the weirdest characters of all time. Yeah. So I think Actively I thought Jesus. that, I thought, yeah, basically gold Jesus. So yeah. I, I definitely thought that was where they were going to go with it. But you know what? Keeping two people in like a tiny weird pocket dimension, constantly fighting over this one version. That's fine. Sure. Go for it. I, I mean, wonder at what point do they come out of it and be like, wait, 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 time out, time out, time out. Are we, where are we right now? As we're still, like, at what point do they do they realize? Or do they just, like, fight literally forever before? The, like, I do wonder if, like, we could see, like, a season two or season three, like, bottle episode that's just those two, like, having a conversation about. Oh, they will get out, like, right? Like, you know, I that mean, or just, like, sitting in there and, like, having a conversation maybe teaming up, maybe not. But I definitely could imagine that because that was a big part of that Doctor Strange episode was kind of the existential like crisis of it all yeah. and being trapped with yourself. But these two are just trapped with each other, which is actually probably much worse than being trapped with yourself. Um, Obviously, a lot of overtones of like Age of Ultra. I, I was watching this and thinking, well, you know, if they ever try and adapt a kind of post-apocalyptic Ultron world, they kind of can't do it now because they've mm -hmm. they've they've kind of done this was basically age of ultron minus mutants minus wolverine yeah you know it was i know the, dude i was thinking that a lot i was like a nice team but needs more x-men like <laughs> yeah, yeah well uh, could they not i mean i find myself thinking this like and we as we've been sitting here wondering when will they introduce them when will they introduce them i obviously it feels like what if as you noted is it's based on MCU lore. So until mm -hmm. something happens in MCU, it kind of can't happen in what if. We can't yeah. get it. what if this scenario based on characters that haven't been introduced yet. But like, why not? Why couldn't we it see? It seems like this why would be the place. Why couldn't we see a world? Yeah. It why seems like this would be the place. Can... Yeah, why not? Like, could it not happen? Imagine imagine if it when the Watcher had been, one, first of all, I just need to say, I should have said it when we first said the name, but all about, when it was like, when I saw the title and it was, what if the Watcher broke his oath? I was like, what if he didn't? That's what the what yeah. if would actually be. What if he didn't? Because this he, he breaks his oath every fucking time. Every yeah. Watcher story is just him breaking his oath. But if he was going around breaking his oath, I was just like, imagine if he just plucked a Wolverine from somewhere, yeah, an old man Logan. You know what? People would have lost, lost their darn minds. They, and I understand they, they the MCU yeah. 
Well, the thing is, right? So I would, I was about to say, I understand the MCU doesn't work like that. And there's five, 10 years of planning and blah, blah. But after the end of Venom, I'm like, actually, that's just, the MCU's messy now. I'm like, Tom Hardy <laughs> Venom is in the MCU. Bring in Wolverine, well, bring in Storm, bring in whoever yeah. else. I'm like, it's fine now. Everything as, is free for all. As you noted, uh, Feige is like the master of neatness. He demands mm-hmm. like efficiency and, and, and kind of like streamlining. So that probably wouldn't happen, but it'd be, it'd be amazing if it, if it did happen, well, I will. I want to bring up one uh, kind of how does this work, uh, th- which is in line with our conversation about like the gems. So mm-hmm. uh, the the initial plan was they're going to use the Infinity Crusher, this kind of like grinding device, to destroy the gems that Ultron has. But then it turns out it won't work because the Infinity Crusher is from a different universe, different set of gems. Doesn't work here. So then. Why do Ultron's gems work at all where he is? Yeah, it doesn't. The logic behind that, I understand the the narrative decision to introduce an easy solution and then take it away. Like yeah. that's you. You want that gut punch, but it doesn't make sense. I guess the idea is he has at some point in episode eight, he kind of mastered once he understood the watcher was there, he mastered right. the multiverse. So in that way, I suppose it's like his own omnipotent. Like right, his, it's like a it's a, a master set of gems. His power becomes yeah, I got it. But then in that way, I feel like no gem crusher would have been able to solve it because that's the gems have almost taken on a different role where they are the multiversal gems rather than gems from you know another universe. One thing, first of all, I love the I uh, love Strange's uh, time saving gambit to like drop. Uh, all of Marvel zombies on the head of Ultron, <laughs> but it was really about setting up this confrontation between zombie Wanda and Ultron. And then, so she blasts him and then there's like a moment of recognition, but then nothing. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like we, there is literally an entire episode in this show, the Marvel zombies episode, where we learn that after seeing WandaVision and how, Wonder and Vision's love is kind of this twisted, like they'll do anything for each other. We see that in an extreme version in What If, where Vision is literally like filleting T'Challa to feed Wanda, zombie Wanda. And you're telling me that this zombified Wanda, the most powerful mutant, superhero, whatever word we're using in the world, you're telling me she doesn't see her hunky, infinity stone wielding husband. He looks really cool. And also, like, she would recognize him like that. And then Strangers just made the worst decision ever because then you have zombie mutant Wanda who can't control her infinite powers and literal infinite Ultron who has Vision's face and does still have the Mind Stone. And yeah. come on, that that to me is a, that's, that's a mistake. <laughs> that bumped me too. I was like, wait a second, that's it? Like, uh, what is her reaction here? I, there, clearly she recognizes him. Does he know what the connection is? Mm. But it kind of also feels like that was such a big bump that we're going to, they have to explore that at some point. Like that, if that happened in the comics, if you, if you like turned a page and it's like this recognition between two characters and then you turned it and then we went back to like some other fight in the A story, Mm -hmm. a year, two years Five years later, Something's at some happening. point in time, some creative team would be okay. We have to we have to unpack yeah. what that is because that was kind of huge. I think so too because also think about it. 
he has time stone. Like there are things that could happen here that would, and obviously maybe, but Ultron knows everything. Infinite Ultron knows everything and he is Vision and Ultron together. So I feel like that has to be there. And I feel like it makes sense that Wanda recognizes him because even Wanda is so in love with Vision that in the comics, even when he loses the thing that made her love him, the personality, Simon Williams, you know, mind print, imprint or whatever it is, she still wants white Vision. She still wants Vision who is, not vision, you know? So I feel like that connection is there. Yeah, I think if, like you said, the fact they add that moment of recognition, that probably means we're going to see, maybe season two will have like King, Infinite Ultron and like, you know, maybe Queen Queen Zombie. Maybe she'll break those two out of the pocket dimension to try and recreate Infinite Vision. But yeah, that was was a moment. I was like, oh, (laughs) this is trouble. These are the things we are thinking about in a post uh, what if world. I'm excited to see what they do for uh, season two. Yeah. Up next, the omnibus. Welcome to another chapter in the omnibus where lore analysis and understanding come together this week. Let's explore the origins and the ongoing cultural fascination with Spider-Man's symbiote suit and the introduction of that character along with Eddie Brock. 1984's Marvel superhero Secret Wars ushered in the era of the crossover event. The 12-issue limited series, which influenced continuity across the company, was the brainchild of then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, a titanic and widely reviled figure who set an incredibly successful course for Marvel Comics from 1978 to his ouster in 1987 for, reportedly, being such a gigantic asshole that everyone hated him so much they burned him in effigy. Yes, they burned him in effigy. That's how much Jim Shooter was hated by his staff. Secret Wars told the story of the Beyonder, an immensely powerful cosmic entity who transports Earth superheroes and supervillains to a battle world where they fight for the Beyonder's entertainment. Secret Wars was not an inventive or emotionally resonant story. It was essentially an excuse to get all of Marvel's characters in the same story for the purpose of selling Mattel action figures. In other words, it was as good as it needed to be to do its job, and that job it did very, very well. It sold through the roof, artist and writer John Byrne told Sean Howe in Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. The financial windfall was so great that Marvel and DC, whose sales uh, were kind of weak at the time, briefly, amazingly, talked about a licensing deal which would allow the house that Stan built to publish Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, New Teen Titans, Legion of Superheroes, the JLA. That would have been crazy. Besides making crossover events part of the regular cadence of superhero storytelling, Secret Wars' main contribution is unquestionably Spider-Man's black costume, later to be revealed uh, to be a sentient parasitic creature who would go on to become, along with the journalist Eddie Brock, the villain slash antihero Venom. Now, the symbiote actually has two first appearances. The alien first hit newsstands in May 1984 is The Amazing Spider-Man number 252, which told the story of Peter Parker's return to Earth in his new black suit after the events of Secret Wars. But Secret Wars was an ongoing event at that time, and so it wasn't until months later, in the pages of December 1984's Secret Wars number 8, that the audience learned the story of how Peter first obtained his new costume, and that is the symbiote's official first canonical appearance. 
The rumors are true. Introducing the new Spider-Man, read the cover of The Amazing Spider-Man number 252, which shows Peter in his new black suit with white trim swinging through the streets of Manhattan with a teenager under each arm that he's rescuing. The issue is a pretty boring bottle episode about Peter literally getting back into the swing of New York City after his ordeal on Battleworld. We get a glimpse in these pages to the costume's really creepy but kind of cool new abilities, as well as various hints to the costume's actual nature. Peter, uh, for instance, retrieves his wallet and keys from the place he hid them in Central Park before he went to Battleworld. Quote, instantly reacting to Spider-Man's unspoken command, his costume suddenly opens a wide seam to receive his keys and wallet. No sooner does he place them within it than it immediately reseals itself. End quote. Later, after arriving at his apartment, the suit morphs into casual wear, kind of Steve Jobsy in turtleneck and black jeans. When Peter wakes in the middle of the night, thinking about how nice it would be to maybe do some late-night web-slinging, the costume slinks from its resting place on the chair and just flows over his body, immediately suiting him up. Months later, in Secret Wars 8, readers get to see how Peter uh, and the suit came to meet. Spider-Man and a collection of heroes, including Hulk, Thor, Monica Rambeau, Captain Marvel, Hawkeye, and others are storming Doctor Doom's Doom Base— And in the course of this battle, they take out various supervillains, including the uh, recently introduced Titania, who is superpowers, basically. She's very, very strong. And the long-running Avengers foil Ultron. After the fight, Peter's costume is just in shreds, is absolutely in tatters. He runs into Hulk and Thor, and uh, Peter's like, "Uh, Thor, you're cape is like brand new. What the hell? And Hulk and Thor tell Peter about this machine in the Doom base that produces clothing by reading a person's thoughts. Peter finds the machine. He places his head under this thing that looks like a lamp. Now, a few issues earlier in Secret Wars 6 and 7, Julia Carpenter, who is that era's Spider-Woman, made her debut, and she was wearing an all-black costume with white detailing, very similar to the black suit that we're about to see. And so Peter, influenced by Spider-Woman's fit, is thinking about a new costume, and a black globule about the size of a billiard ball appears in front of him, and the substance immediately covers his body, and voila, we have the black suit. Now, the idea for the black costume came from a fan, Randy Schuler. Back in the day, in the early 80s, Marvel ran a competition for aspiring writers and artists. Being a lifelong Spidey fan with delusions of comic grandeur, I took a stab at a story idea. Schuler states in a 2007 article for Comic Book Resources, Randy's pitch involves a new stealth costume, black in color, which would be manufactured by Reed Richards out of unstable molecules. Now, a few months later, in August 1982, Jim Shooter, the then editor-in-chief, wrote back, I want to buy it. That's his opening. His opening statement is, I want to buy it. No, hello, how you doing? Pleased to meet you. I want to buy it. Jim Shooter getting right to the point. We'll pay $220. Enclosed, find a work-for-hire agreement and a voucher. That's about $600 in today's money. Not exactly a kingly fucking sum. Thanks, Jim Shooter. But probably big money for for a kid who's just, you know, uh, pitched Marvel cold. The agreement gave Randy the opportunity to try and write the script for this story. Now, Randy ended up submitting a couple of versions of drafts, but in the end, it just uh, didn't work out. Regardless... I had no regrets. As a true blue Spidey fan, this was a very cool moment in my life, Randy wrote. Spider-Man's new look, though minimalistic in design, was 
a huge change and and a change generations in the making. Spider-Man's costume, uh, a few tweaks aside, the most notable being uh, the elimination of Spidey's like underarm web wings after a couple years had been basically the same since the character's debut in 1962. And so the reaction to this change was incredibly emotional. You've got to be kidding me said Ron Friend, Spider-Man's artist at the time. I waited all my life since the age of eight to draw Spider-Man, and now he's got a new suit. Meanwhile, Marvel's marketing department didn't like it because they, you know, probably not unfairly thought it would confuse licensees and hurt Spider-Man's marketability. At the time, Marvel made a lot of money putting its characters onto lunchboxes, onto uh, toy cars, onto posters, etc. And, you know, this is in the mid-80s, early 80s, we don't have the kind of media ecosystem that we have today where these characters are everywhere and you can find them like at the click of a mouse, you know, changing the look of an iconic character is no small thing to do. So meanwhile, there was also the fan response and to quote another podcast bit, the fans hated it. They hated it. And they knew the change was coming. The October, 1983 issue of the comics journal, a trade magazine, kind of akin to, you know, comics version of Variety or The Hollywood Reporter, contained a blurb about Marvel's upcoming Secret Wars storyline in its Newswatch section and below a full-body profile illustration of Spider-Man in the new costume. The article reads in part, quote, some of the planned changes include Spider-Man trading in his costume for a black and red one. Other industry publications around the same time carried similar stories. Thus, the cover text from Amazing Spider-Man 252, The Rumors Are True, was a reference to the fact that fans had kind of known this was going to happen. And, man, the fans fucking hated it. They inundated Marvel with hate mail. Faced with a furious reaction from inside and outside the company, Shooter chickened out. He got cold feet. He wanted to pull the costume, like, basically as soon as it was introduced by, you know, it, we introduced a black costume, 252, it's off of Peter by 253. He didn't want to do it. But in the end, uh, Marvel editor Tom DeFalco convinced Shooter to keep the symbiote at least until the creature made its canonical debut in Secret Wars number 8 because it would just be super weird if later we introduce this thing, but but fans already know that Peter is not going to wear it. So after that, the plan was, okay, after Secret Wars 8, we just get rid of it at the earliest convenience. Now, over the next several issues of Amazing Spider-Man, after the introduction of the symbiote, something weird happens. Fans learned that the new costume was, in fact, a living creature, a parasitic alien symbiote. They learned that at night, as Peter slept... The creature would take his body out for test drives, swinging over the rooftops. Peter, in the daytime, is becoming progressively more exhausted. He's suffering from nightmares in which his old suit is fighting his black suit over control of him. And so, in Amazing Spider-Man 258, Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four uses a sonic blaster to cleave the symbiote off of Peter. Peter leaves the Baxter building like in a Fantastic Four uniform with a brown paper bag over his head, and Reed keeps the symbiote for further study, and there we have it, right? The Jim Shooter has accomplished this goal. The black suit is off of Peter. And by uh, Amazing Spider-Man 259, Peter is back in his original uh, blue and red costume with the words, the original is back on the cover. But the weird thing about those issues was, over the course of them, fans fell in love with the black suit. They loved it. And they could tell because sales were going up. 
sales of Amazing Spider-Man were just climbing and climbing and climbing. Additionally, the secondary market was also popping with people looking to collect that first appearance of the black suit. Now, over the course of the 1970s in pop culture, anti-heroes and films like Dirty Harry, The French Connection, Taxi Driver, Death Wish, Dog Day Afternoon, The Godfather 1 and 2, First Blood uh, from the 80s, uh, in which violent protagonists operate in these kind of like moral shades of gray were becoming increasingly popular. Meanwhile, Marvel Comics was reaching its third decade of operation as its modern incarnation, like post-timely incarnation, which we would date to like the introduction of the Fantastic Four, essentially. And so its fan base was getting older and their tastes were maturing as well. And that was reflected in the work of Frank Miller, his kind of like noirish work with Daredevil, Peter David's incredible Hulk stories in which the Hulk reverts to his gray form and becomes this like Vegas area mobster known as Joe Fix-It. Also the skyrocketing popularity of Wolverine who just like literally cuts people up with his claws and the increasing popularity of Frank Castle, the murderous vigilante known as the Punisher. All of these things reflected that cultural shift. The Comics Code Authority, an industry group created in 1954 to avoid governmental regulation by ensuring comics weren't overly violent, sexual, or immoral, was beginning to lose its grip, at least on the violent aspect of that kind of three-legged stool. Now, Because, you know, at the time, Shooter was enforcing a strict no-gaze policy, um, though a few creative stories, particularly Captain America number 268 by J.M. DeMattis and, and Mike Zeck managed to get through. Now... Peter Parker was never going to be an anti-hero, right? He was never going to decapitate people. He was never going to gun down foes and throw them off the top of buildings. But wrapping him in all black certainly made him look more of a badass, and so the suit had to be saved. In February 1985's Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, Spider-Man's other monthly ongoing series, Black Cat, Peter's off-again, on-again love interest, knits him another costume that looks just like the black suit. How did it manage to escape from Fantastic Four headquarters, Spider-Man says. Silly, this isn't your real alien costume, Black Cat says to him. This is just an ordinarily everyday cloth version of it. I sewed it myself. It's so much sexier than your old red and blue long johns. Now, Spider-Man would spend the next few years switching from his red suit to his black suit, going back and forth. Now, the first appearance of the symbiote and Eddie Brock as Venom came in 1988's The Amazing Spider-Man number 300. Writer David Michelinie, whose Demon in a Bottle storyline forever altered Tony Stark, originally intended Venom to be a woman who uh, blames Spider-Man for the deaths of her husband and baby. Michelinie included teasers in 1986's Web of Spider-Man 18 and 1987's Web of Spider-Man number 24, the third ongoing Spider-Man title of the 80s that replaced Marvel's team-up title. And that was supposed to set up the eventual reveal of this female Venom. A hand pushes Peter in front of the subway train and it doesn't trigger his spider sense, which I thought was key, McElhaney told ComicCrusaders.com in 2017. Editor Jim Salakrup wanted to do something special for issue 300 of Amazing, so I said, okay, I've got this character. He liked the idea, but he didn't think readers would accept a woman standing toe with Spider-Man. Folks, it was 1988. I digress. Continuing the quote, so I came up with the Eddie Brock character and his background and motivation, and that became Venom. So Eddie Brock, as we meet him in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 300, is a workout freak and a former terrible journalist. Eddie describes himself as, this is my favorite bit of this comic, he, he describes himself as solid at journalism, quote, solid, as if he was talking about, like, his 
acumen at playing pool, not like a vital mechanism of a free society. Anyway, Eddie's last story for the Daily Globe was a multi-part interview with a mentally ill man named Emil Gregg. Mr. Gregg believes himself to be the psychopathic murderer of the Sin Eater, and Brock makes the pretty solid decision to just like run with this without like apparently checking it out. Protecting Mr. Gregg's identity through my rights under the First Amendment, I told his story incisively and compassionately, says Brock during his classic got him right where I want him villain monologue. Unfortunately, you know, people I think fairly thought it was pretty fucked up of Eddie Brock and the Daily Globe to give a platform to a serial killer while also protecting his identity. The police insisted that I reveal my source so that they could stop the murders. <laughs> Under the advice of counsel, I finally wrote my masterpiece. <laughs> Announcing Greg is the sin eater, says Eddie Brock. Under the advice of counsel. Oh, Eddie, you idiot. Less than two hours later, as Eddie tells the story, the masterpiece was undone because Peter Parker did some basic fact-checking was like, hey, that's not the sin eater. That's just like a mentally ill gentleman. The Globe fired Brock. Good. What about Brock's editor? No word on that. And he was forced to scrape out a living uh, writing, quote, venomous celebrity exposés and I was kidnapped by aliens drivel. Sounds like a good gig, honestly. He took all the money he had, moved to the Bronx, which in 1980s pop culture communicated as a not very complex code for Eddie moved to a bad neighborhood. He turned his whole apartment into a gym, lifted weights all the time, and dreamed of killing Spider-Man as he's, like, doing curls. Eventually, unable to cope, he decides to end his life. He goes to a church, and there the symbiote finds him, drawn by he and Brock's shared hatred of Spider-Man, and Venom is born. The Amazing Spider-Man number 300 was artist Todd McFarlane's third issue on the title, and it's kind of impossible to separate the popularity of the symbiote Venom and its various, sorry for this, spawn from the rocket ship ascendancy of Todd McFarlane as an artist and creator. The artist's work in Amazing Spider-Man hit comics like a jolt of electricity. He, along with Rob Liefeld, were just like one of the most exciting young artists working at the time. And his Spidey leapt off the page, legs splayed, spider-like, swinging from like intricately detailed webs. Less lauded, but just as important as the dynamic character poses with McFarlane's contemporary touch on Peter and the people in Amazing Spider-Man. Peter, as McFarlane rendered him, had a kind of like shaggy mullet, wore leather jacket and jeans. Uh, Mary Jane had this kind of like layered, teased up hair, big shouldered tunics, slouchy belt looks. They looked like people who knew that they were in the year 1988. Whereas under the touch of previous artists, you know, Spider-Man and Peter Parker looked like he literally was just like time traveled from 1963. McFarlane's Venom was a muscle-bound figure with horror elements, gaping mouth lined with these shark-like teeth, thick lapping tongue that gave the character a terrifying presence, which along with that muscle-bound look, which the 80s going into the mid-90s was the period of Schwarzenegger and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Sylvester Stallone, these kind of like muscle-bound action figures. And so this look with the horror elements was perfect for an anti-hero. McFarlane, like Ron Friends before him, was not a fan of the black costume. Talking to the YouTube channel Comic Tom 101 in March 2021, McFarlane described his 
thinking of the symbiote as an artist in his 20s as it's not cool, man. McFarlane says he told Shooter he would only come on Amazing Spider-Man if Spidey got to go back to the red and blue costume. So Venom then was a kind of compromise, a way to keep the increasingly popular black suit in the mix. Quote, David McElhaney comes up with a way to basically use the costume another way. They needed a visual. I created the visual. I've told people issue 300 isn't the first appearance of Venom to me. Issue 300 is the how do we get that damn black costume off of Peter Parker issue? And that he did indeed. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we dive deeper into specific topics with the help of guest panelists. Joining us today, X-Ray Vision is pleased to welcome A.C. Bradley, head writer of Marvel's What If and series director Brian Andrews. Welcome to the show. Hello. Congratulations on a super fun season. Um, with a show like What If, based on a, you know a, a comic book series that was like just uh, unbounded by anything but imagination, what what kind of rules did you put on yourselves as you were as you were accepting pitches or coming up with story or developing story? Are the rules? Well, it's, we- yeah, if, if funny. Like, er, well, early on, it was we just the one quote unquote rule was it, it was all spinning off the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It wasn't going to be based on the comics or any of that type of stuff because you know we wanted to do what people were familiar with. This came from Kevin and Brad. They just knew it's just like no, no, no. We don't need to. Only the stuff that was in the movies, and we can't introduce anyone that hasn't been introduced in the movie. So that was kind of like, quote unquote, a rule. Other than that, it, it just whatever was excited us. And the, the, you know, when we got together to come up with ideas, it was just free and open. We're just nerding out, coming up with all the crazy. But, but with that, get, with those guardrails. For me, um, when I went in to pitch for the job, I actually created a small document of like, here's the rules of the show. And there was like, I think two, three big ones. One was, we can't let every episode turn into a team up. That's going to be our finale. We're going to keep these character focused, keep them close on one or two characters, hopefully unusual combinations. The second rule flowing from that was, we need to stay true to who these characters are. We've now grown up, grown up with them, either from the comics or from watching the movies. If we're going to do an episode where Thor destroys the planet, it it needs to make sense with who he is as Mm -hmm. a character. And in the MCU, Thor has already been through a gauntlet of tragedy and pain. And at the end of it, he's still a very good man. He's still worthy. So I was like, I'm not going to make it that he's like in a bad mood and he comes down to destroy Paris. He's in a very good mood (laughs) and does it by accident. Because that I can see. I can see a world where Thor just wants to have a good time. And yeah. I believe the third rule was the watcher mm. is the audience. So every time yes. we're talking about the watcher, it's him growing to love these characters, love these stories, and having them affect him over the course of nine to 10 episodes. So it's kind of just kind of like putting guardrails up for ourselves as storytellers <laughs> to make sure that, like Fury, we keep our eye on the big picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a, a craziest pitch that didn't get made that that you could tell us without burning a future idea? Uh, well, <laughs> everyone seems to love that President Rogers cameo in episode eight. <laughs> yeah. And there was very briefly me and Matt Chauncey are huge Sorkin fans. And we did spend 
a lunch eating poke bowls in the Disney cafeteria because we never miss poke bowl day and talking about what about a West Wing Marvel mashup and what would mm -hmm. the Rogers administration look like, but doesn't really lend itself to a lot of action. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very talky, idealistic episode. But if anyone out there ever wants to create a, a superhero in the West Wing show, I'm, we've, got, mm -hmm. we've got notes. Oh, yeah. No, I think there's probably a way to get some action in there. It's a fun idea. It's great. And just being able to see more of that and seeing who he has as his cabinet. I mean, it could be, it could, yeah, it could be fun. <laughs> it's, it's a fun idea. Um, obviously, an important uh, component of this series is the animation, the animation style. Um, how did you arrive at, at the style that the series is presented in the look and feel of it um kind of there was early talks that of possibly doing every single episode a completely different style um but when brad and i were first meeting about it and but we kind of shot that down relatively quickly because you know it can get pricey and expensive to produce but also we're riffing off the cinematic universe and it doesn't make sense to have everything designed wacky different for each episode mm. if it's trying to be like you know what I mean? Because it's supposed to yeah. be canon, it's part of the student and connects to the cinematic universe. So it's like, oh, here's these stories that are simply being told to you in this mm -hmm. style. Um, it's so, so therefore, it's the equivalent of the live action. So, and I want, so I, therefore, I wanted to shoot it as if we were shooting it live action. I wanted to play with lensing, depth of field, all that stuff. A, because I love it, but also B, because I want to see more of that in animation. And then for the art style, I, I zeroed in on um, JC Leindecker and some of the illustrators of you know the early um, 20th century. Um, because I love that look. I love JC Linebacker's work and Hollywood's been chasing it for, for like, you know, mm -hmm. hundred years, you know, um, with various levels of success, you know, um, and Ryan Minerding who designs like the Marvel universe and he's just, you know, a God. Um, he also loves JC Linebacker to death. And so does like our production designer, Paul Hussain, who's also amazing. And so, so the characters were going to be JC Leindecker, but then we needed a background art style to have them blend. And so we still pulled from American Illustrators, but we had to get a little bit more graphic just to match some of the line work that we're into. So it was kind of like a confluence of a couple different things. And then with Paul and Ryan working together, we're able to get something that kind of worked the way we, we wanted to. But it was mainly, it was just me wanting to, I want to see it this way <laughs> and showing it to, to, to the trio. And, um, Basically, I put up the first image of JC Leindecker stuff, um, and Kevin was like, "If it looks like this, I'm in. We're basically done in, in, in the meeting. We're good. We're good." You know? <laughs> so then the rest of us was just all nerding out about the art. He was he was in full full steam. So you mentioned the anthology aspect. Um, how soon, AC, did you did you all hit on there being a team up kind of framework of this? Um, I think I lied a lot in some of my interviews uh, earlier in the season. So pretty much on day two, we knew we wanted to do a team up. I wanted to do a team up in my original pitch. It came a different way, but you know, this is the fun of storytelling is that you find different ways to tell stories. And we knew that we wanted the watcher to break his oath. Just like in the comic books, he says, no, yep. no, 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 no. And then he's like, oh, I can't possibly have that second piece of cake. I can't. I can't. Oh, it's going straight to my hips. Give it to me. Um, yeah. So we just had to find a villain worthy of the watcher. And 
I love Ultron and Age of Ultron was great, but we felt like there was more we could do with him. Uh, in the comic books, he's such a much more bigger presence. And luckily, because phase four has now hit, Ultron meets the Infinity Gauntlet, that's a pretty horrific and devastating force to be reckoned with. And it gave us a reason for the Watcher to break his oath. Mm -hmm. As we were writing the episodes, Captain Carter was always a favorite, Star-Lord T'Challa. Mm -hmm. Definitely wanted to revisit Doctor Strange in a new and unusual way that didn't so much redeem mm -hmm. him, but showed again another side of him and the lessons he learned in his story. We knew we wanted to use Killmonger, but again, he's not the typical hero or villain. Yeah. How would he fit into the Watcher's plan? So it was a mixture of, okay, who has been our favorites over this journey of creating the show? And also, basically, burden was on me to take a step back and figure out what would the Watcher's plan be and how would mm -hmm. these different elements come into play? And luckily, I mean, the show has been freaking amazing, I think. I shouldn't probably say that about my own show. But... <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it's been so much fun. And I think Brian agrees to play with these characters. Like yeah. zombie Wanda yeah. was in the scripts and she was cool. But when you saw her on boards and then when you saw her in finished animation, she kind of blew your mind. I was like, okay, she has to come back. She's the T-Rex right. in Jurassic Park. She needs to come back in the finale and we got to do her some justice. So it was kind of like, you know, just taking your cherry picking your favorite parts and playing with the toys yeah. again. Um, you you mentioned Zombie Wanda. Um, that the the moment of recognition that she has when she's facing off with uh, Ultron seemed very weighty. Are there moments like that that are gonna that we're going to revisit in a, a season two of What If, or just later down the line? Um, uh, who knows? I, I think, yeah. you know, um, since this stuff exists now, who knows, like, if we're so fortunate to do many, many episodes or many, many seasons, there could be an opportunity where there's like a what if off of what if, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> who knows, you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 it's too early to tell. Um, but right now, it's just the sky's the sky's the limit. So I who knows, you know, it could be cool. I think, um, you know, because of the tag at the end of the, the finale, um, you know, one could wager that we might see someone again, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of the Marvel universe is that it keeps expanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's always new characters, new stories to tell in season two. I mean, as much as I love Party Thor, I think I want to play yeah. in Shang-Chi for a while. Come on. I love like, that. like, that's an um, amazing role. Let's go play there. I, yeah, I love totally. the Party Thor episode as a as a lifelong comics fan, especially Marvel Comics. These heroes have been through so much. So I always loved the bottle issues where it's like the Avengers just hanging out at a barbecue or, you know, totally. uh, you know, playing baseball or something like that. Is there a particular favorite moment or episode or even just scene that you that you have from the series? I have a special love for Darcy Lewis. So early on in figuring out party Thor, we realized that um, me with a beer in me and Darcy Lewis are kind of the same. Uh, <laughs> making the dirty joke, being silly. So when it came to doing um, an animation, we'll do temp voices. We'll do scratch mm -hmm. voices before the actual like Kat Dennings or Paul Bettany or Chris Hemsworth come in just to test out lines and jokes against the storyboards. Uh, mm -hmm. I had a couple of drinks with the editors and some of the production crew at lunch. 
and recorded the original Darcy scratch, which was so much fun. And actually a lot of her lines were ad-libs by me and the crew while hanging out in the edit bay at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon and breaking Disney rules of the alcohol. Ryan, you weren't there and you were very well, you were very much missed because we cracked open the whiskey. And I know, I, I totally missed out. I'm so sad. I know. It was a kind of, I didn't, I'm not a very good actress. So it was kind of yeah. goading from the editors who are very good friends of mine. And then I love Howard the Duck. Yes. Just, who doesn't? Yeah. I love Howard the Duck. And Seth Green is so, so hilarious lovely. because. Ashley did such a great job with it too. And um, I, I really think that, you know, Kat Dennings and or Darcy Lewis is like Ashley's spirit animal. Um, <laughs> because when it came time, when it came time to record a Kat Dennings, who's, who's just a gem, she's a magical human being and so sweet and adorable and, and really funny. Um, she, she loved the material, loved all the stuff and she did such a great job at it. But what's amazing is like some of her choices as she was delivering the lines actually were getting very, very close to what Ashley had done. And there was actually two instances where I actually directed Kat without letting her know. I directed her in a way to basically get the delivery the way that, that Ashley had done it. Because actually I, I kind of really loved, there was two spots in particular that, that, that I thought she nailed so perfectly. The time, the comedic timing was just, was, was exactly what it needed to be. And there was no need to change it. So I was kind of like, and she gave me off and the cat gave me all these options. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, it's still not as funny as Ashley so, <laughs> in this one instant. So in this one instance, so I just, I kind of gave her a little note and she's like, oh yeah, great to death. And then she <laughs> did it and she hit it exactly the way that Ashley had done it. And I was just like, hee, hee, hee. I was laughing, but no, but, but Kat's great. And, and, and Ashley's, it, she, she writes so well for all the characters, doesn't matter who it is, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. She, she captures the voice beautifully well. Duck. I can also um, duck. But, <laughs> yeah, but for Cat yeah. Denning specifically, it's like, it's, 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 it's linked cosmically in some way. <laughs> I can't explain it, it's uncanny. It's well, uncanny. You, had, you got to go to her record. I was on the Ms. Marvel set. I think I missed, I missed her record. So we got, we traded off there. Oh, hopefully yeah. you guys didn't crack open the whiskey. <laughs> No, no, because that was like <laughs> super official work. So we're, we're not allowed, unfortunately. Even though I imagine she might be game. I don't know. Yeah. Brian, you have a favorite uh, moment, scene? There's too many. It's like there's so much good stuff. Yeah. It's like every episode has something that's fantastic. And then when I see the audience reaction to those things that we also enjoyed, I'm just like, awesome, we did our job. People are loving that thing. It's, but I think um, there's a ton, but I, but because of the nature of the fact that we, you know, Chadwick mm -hmm. passed just way yeah. too soon. Um, the fact that we were able to actually be in a room with him um, and, and work with him and just enjoy him as a person, even for just, just a work environment moment, just doing that craft and getting him to laugh about stuff. There's some things that um, are not in the Star Lord T'Challa episode that I wish we could have, just wasn't any time, but the, he was riffing on so much stuff in the bar, like the bit when Drax is supposed to take photo. He was like riffing on stuff about like, he's like, I don't know if I want my photo taken in this bar, you know? Like, he, but he <laughs> yeah. way of, it's just like, who's gonna see this? As if he's like got some secret inside. <laughs> like, you know, like he was just having some fun with it. And then there was a thing where, um, like, how does Star Lord should try to laugh? Like, what does he like? Mm. We needed some laughter from scratch. And he's used this very South, this specific South African laugh that had a lot of those like glottal clicks and stops and stuff like he, but he was just doing it and he's just like yeah he was just creating and doing stuff that we didn't get to see black panther do but here's black panther basically doing these things and 
but the audience isn't going to get a chance to see those things. You know, we were hoping he was getting, we we're going to do a spinoff mm. and he was going to have his own show um, with that character and that those people. We never got it, but but that though those that was pretty special too. Just being able to share some time with Chadwick, we had no idea it was his last. You know, that we were going to not yeah. see him again. You know, um, but as a as a fan, it was um, it it was unexpected and certainly uh, really emotional to hear his voice in that moment. To be and, and you know, yeah. Uh, it you really felt it like as a fan you, uh, you felt it yeah he did um, an amazing amazing job how 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 long does it take to to turn one of these um just like from a production sense like it, there's so much it seems like there's so much involved in it um but also mm-hmm. um some of the stuff was quite timely some of the references etc like so how 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 quickly can you turn an episode of these around oh not Oh. Not quickly. It's Anime. a big boat in the ocean. Yeah. It's not a nimble little speed boat like like South Park. Right, right. Yeah. We're not South Park. We're not yeah. South Park. They turn around in a week, and they're yeah. incredible. And at it, but we, it's a, it's far longer than that. Um, I think so we're yeah, s- it takes a while. We're about six months of production in house between writing, storyboards, editing, and temp. With them, that's the temp voices. And then once mm-hmm. everything feels like it's latched, like this is the show, we bring in the Marvel actors. We have the designers who are like already working hard and like figuring out the way it's going to look. And then it's an almost, I'd say about what, a year to 14 months, Brian, wow. to actually animate Some, the show. Something like that. When you, especially when you take into consideration like, you know, sound and post mm-hmm. and all the stuff at the end. And, you know, it takes, it takes a little bit of a chunk of time. I wrote Captain um, Carter um, two weeks before Christmas 2018. Oh wow! Yeah, that was the holy cow. Yeah, so I was looking at the draft yeah. the other day. And, and, yep, and, and and it's in the early stages a little mm-hmm. extra time because no one's done it before, like mm-hmm. the vendors. So mm-hmm. so, but now that the machine is like up and running, um, it still takes time, but hopefully it won't take like that this, that same amount of time. There's a certain degree of brevity now that now that some of that figuring it out what how it gets done doesn't have to be figured out. Um, but yeah, it, it takes a little while, but, you know, hopefully it shows on screen that, you know, there's a level of quality that we're shooting for that hopefully people appreciate. Um, I think they do. A couple of quick things. You mentioned the influence of JC Leindecker. Um, how did you marry some of the, or decide upon some of the kind of the comic book aesthetics that you married to this, for instance, the, the watchers, uh, in between realm where, uh, from which he can view all the universes, stuff like that. Oh, the observatory plane. Yeah. And well, you need a place to hang out and like, you know, take off his shoes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, and- uh, I mean, the, the, the character is having a J.C. Leindecker influence, mm-hmm. but um, J.C. Leindecker didn't necessarily do as many mm-hmm. backgrounds and all that type of stuff. So that, that's when Paula Sane was able to then work and, and try to create like this look for the environments that these characters would be in that seemed to, 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 to meld. Um, and so we borrow also from the comics and the fact that, yeah, you know, we read them when we were younger and like the watcher kind of watching in the distance, all that type mm. of stuff. Those are all images. Those are all things that we needed to have. And the Kirby Crackle, Brian, you should mention. Yeah, that. the Kirby, Kirby Crackle was with the little circles was uh, that yeah, was very, quite notable. Like those are those are things in the comics that exist and they're like we have mm-hmm. to see those, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, whether or not they look like J.C. Leindecker is, is a design um start that that has no bearing on whether or not we want to use those visual motifs mm. to right 
yeah. we could just bring those together like like you know like a Reese's peanut butter cup of awesome and chocolate <laughs> and peanut butter. And then finally, AC legally, what is the legal status of the marriage between Howard the Duck and Darcy? Like, is that <laughs> do we have to get that annulled? Is that binding? Well, like everything, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So as long as they're in Vegas, I think they're definitely married. Outside of Vegas, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how Darcy the Duck is going to do. <laughs> Long-term <laughs> relationship. Uh, I like to think Howard has his shit together, but who knows? Maybe he does. Maybe he's ready to grow up. Uh, Brian, AC, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations on, on a really fun series. Oh, thanks. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. Glad you liked it, man. That's all for Hive Mind. Up next, the end game. We are in the end game now, and it's time for Rosie and I to play face off, in which we pick a character from another franchise, series, or universe that we think could defeat a particular character, in this case, Infinite Ultron from uh, season one of What If. So, Rosie. What character from another universe could be any other story could stand toe to toe and potentially defeat Infinite Ultron? Could it be Gandalf? Could it be Daenerys on uh, Balerion? No way. Could it be Neo <laughs> in the computer or outside of the computer? Okay, we can unpack that later. Could it be yeah. Voldemort? Could it be Darth Vader? Could it be Darkseid, etc.? Who do you think it could be? We were just talking in the pre-pro that yeah. Darkseid, if Darkseid has like two years to get it together, mm-hmm. maybe. If Darkseid's been planning since before Earth came about and he's right, chilling, right. He's like, you know, right. with granny goodness or whatever, maybe, maybe. He's assembling happen. like his his like army of children and supervillains. And, like, yeah, and he wants one the gems by one. for yeah, some yeah, reason. Like, but it would take yeah. like 15 years. He did, It would yeah. be, Infinite Ultron's already in a pocket dimension or whatever. So I... I think Neo is actually such a slick answer because we know yeah. how important the computer is. But my uh, my answer is going for like a, a battle of the wits type thing. Like Ultron has always been a character who's obsessed with knowledge, obsessed with destroying humans, obsessed with kind of like finding out how things work and then using that to kind of dismantle stuff. So my character that I'm going to pick would be Pinhead from Hellraiser. One, because I love the whole I love the whole Hellraiser franchise. And two, because I think the puzzle box, I think if you get if somebody just appeared to Infinite Ultron and was like, are these pesky humans annoying you? Try this puzzle box. You know, if you open it, you can unleash hell on all these multiple universes. And then he would be, you know, trapped to the Cenobites, potentially end up in the hole or just get like torn apart by cool hooks or something. I think I think you got to go out of the box to beat him because within the world of the MCU, he's almost he's almost too overpowered. So I think if you're going outside, you got to go really outside. So, I, yeah, I'm picking Pinhead, Doug Bradley Pinhead only. I love this. Neo would be good. Any kind of like computer e mm-hmm. AI slash virusy, like Neo is, you know, computer Jesus. Um, it brought down the machine world. I certainly think he's capable of doing it. I think probably a smarter answer would be like corrupt Agent Smith to just kind of like overwhelm mm-hmm. Ultron's like synapses. That said, you probably have another problem then because then you have uh, Agent Smith in, in charge of Ultron. Infinite you have to lock Agent Smith. <laughs> Infinite Agent Smith. You need to lock them in a pocket dimension. I'm going to go with you need to keep Ultron whether or not you could defeat him, what you need to do is keep him occupied for mm-hmm. a long, long, long time. So I'm going to go with 
an amalgamation of characters. I'm going to go with uh, Death from the Ingmar Bergman movie that plays <laughs> uh, chess with the knight, right? This is Max wow, That's incredible. Right. But an amalgam of that death with the death from Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey. Bill and Ted's Bogus <laughs> Journey, right? And so that death would just constantly be like, okay, let's do fidget spinners. Okay, let's do bottle wow. flipping. Let's okay, play bass. Let's, let's play bass. And so, like, it just be like constant, <laughs> constant, constant, constant challenges from death that would keep Ultron. Wow. Infinite Ultron infinitely tied up in like a million billion infinite different games that and he would never be able to escape like you couldn't so he would never actually be like physically and existentially defeated but he would just be like constantly being doing okay like word jumbles okay now we're playing tekken now we're playing mortal Kombat. now we're like wow. playing jacks like and yeah so, twist and, and that would go Twister, and it would go on and on. And that on is and on. an, an. I really thought I had the most out of the box answer, but that is honestly a perfect answer. An amalgamation of two perfect things: Ingmar Bergman <laughs> and Bill and Ted. <laughs> That's it for the end game. Let us know whether you agree or couldn't disagree more. Share your answers using hashtag XRV Endgame. That's XRV Endgame. Thank you, AC Bradley, Brian Andrews, and Rosie Knight for joining us on another episode of X-ray Vision. Uh, Rosie, where can people find your stuff this week? Uh, I have a ton of different stuff. I got a lot of Halloween-esque situations going yes. on with the spooky season. <laughs> so I'm going to be at Polygon, Nerdist as always, uh, IGN. And I'm the only social media I have is Instagram. So feel free to follow me on there where I always shout out the podcast. It's just Rosie Marks, M-A-R-X. <laughs> Next week, our episode will be returning to its regular Wednesday release for your weekly dose of the deepest dives and hottest takes. Until then, what if, guys? What if? Just what if? Think about it. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by me, and Sandy Gerard, Caroline Reston, and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Big thanks to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. <laughs>